and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I'm your host, Emma Graney, and this is the Orchestrating Change edition. With me today, I have Stuart Thompson. Good title. Thank you so much. It took a bit of a hive minding, <laughs> that one. Yeah. Because yeah. I come in here very prepared every morning <laughs> with a script and a title. Yep. Uh, Paula Simons. Good day, Emma. Hello, Paula has a new puppy. It's very cute. The new puppy is is wonderful, but somewhat exhausting. So if you hear me yawning, dear listeners, it's because <laughs> I have an eight an eight week old puppy at home. So cute. And Keith Durain. Good morning. Come to talk to us today because we're going to talk about health. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Just hold back on the enthusiasm, <laughs> Keith. Oh, yeah. All right, you're going to break your microphone. <laughs> So, of course, we're going to be talking about orchestrating change in all manner of ways today. Um, that was actually a line from the AG's report or it something was. close to it, which yeah. is one of the things we're going to talk about. The Auditor General has recommended some big changes to Alberta's healthcare system. Um, also going to talk about changes to labour laws, which were introduced this week in the ledge, as we all expected them to be, and changes to electoral boundaries, which is probably one of the nerdiest things you can talk about, but apparently people are really interested in it. Let's get first, though, to health, because, Keith, you're just, you're just itching. I'm chomping itching at the bed on this. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Look at you. <laughs> so the AG came out with his report yeah. yesterday. When I was speaking to the AG's office, they were like, oh, big, huge, huge changes. It's massive. And they had their first of a technical briefing, didn't they? Yeah, it was an interesting process. Yeah, we got called in in the morning, those of us who wanted to go, and it wound up being about two hours wow. <laughs> talking to the auditor about his audit. Was yeah. that an indication of just how big this report was in your in your mind? Was it huge or what? To a degree. It, it's certainly a, a complex topic. So it's a broad topic. I think that was the reason why he wanted to, uh, to help the media try to understand it. He really... I think genuinely wants to sell it to Albertans. He wants Albertans to actually read this report as opposed to some of the other reports that uh, perhaps he understands are a bit too technical for for most Albertans. But this one is uh, affects everybody. It's about the health system. It's about how it works. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think he was. Uh, I think he he's put a special effort into trying to sell this one to the public. Do you think it's going to work? Because I mean, sometimes those kind of reports they're so big and they're so overwhelming that there's just so much in there. And yeah. you've been talking about a lot of these changes for years, right? It's true. There's there's not a lot in here that's actually different or hasn't been heard before. But I think the the benefit of it is it kind of puts it all together in a nice little package. Uh, it's written not in auditor language. It's actually written in quite simple language. Uh, and I'm actually going to recommend it as my good stuff for the gallery later <laughs> um, because uh, I think for anyone who wants to understand uh, what the health system is, how we got here and what the, the major issues are kind of holding us back, this kind of puts it all together for them. And what are the big changes? Well, it's it's an interesting report. Um it's a different kind of report than we've seen before. So there's no recommendations in this report. That's the first difference from yeah, the auditor. I, mean, that, I understand from reading Keith's excellent story in the paper today that that's because he's frustrated that nobody ever has been acting on his yeah. his, his backlog of recommendations. That, that's that, that's right. Yeah. And he says, look, we've been doing audits on the health system for years. We've, um, you know, we make tons of recommendations and a lot of them don't ever end up getting implemented or we have to repeat them. So he says the answer is not to issue more recommendations. Instead, he decided to kind of take an underlying look uh, at the root causes of why, why the government, why the province struggles to make substantive changes. 
And what he found was a lot of the problems relate to one thing, and that's the lack of integration in our health system. So that plays out in a couple of different ways. At the patient level, most of us, uh, our interactions with the healthcare system are episodic. We, when we have a problem, we go to the doctor, we get it taken care of, or we go to the emergency room, they deal with it. Or if you're like me, you just ignore it. Or you ignore it, right. <laughs> For years. Until, until you collapse on the ground. Yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a healthy way of going about it. I, I hear that, yeah. Mm. So, uh, and that's how most Albertans interact with the health system. Uh, but he says we have a, a right to something better. We should, the moment we're born we should, and throughout our life, we should have somebody managing our care. So this is uh, some, some entity that uh, schedules our appointments, reminds us when we need to have tests, uh, monitors our prescriptions, that kind of gives us a care plan and has a team of professionals um, helping us throughout our lives. So, I mean, I mean, And this is not a radical idea. I mean, this no. is something, you know, back when Sheila Weatherill was in charge of Capital Health, I mean, she had a vision not unlike this. But it's a lot easier said than done. It is. And in fact, the auditor points out this has been Alberta government policy since the 1990s. It just hasn't happened to a substantive degree. But that's the patient level, that we should, we should have this integrated care. Uh, we may not need to see a doctor. We may actually benefit more from an exercise therapist or a nutritionist or a nurse or a psychiatrist. Um, but it all goes through the doctor. That's the current system. At a system level, he says um, that doctors tend to operate too much in silos still and are not tied into the overall health system. And if you think about it with family doctors, for example, they control a huge amount of the health budget, not just the fees they charge, but the prescriptions they write, the tests they order, the referrals they make all have a financial implication. They eat up a huge amount of health resources, and yet they are not connected to Alberta Health Services in any substantive way because they operate on their own. They're private businesses. Uh, and yet Alberta Health Services is supposed to be this entity that controls the health system, that manages the health system. And yet they don't have control over this very large group of doctors who are, um, who are providing uh, a huge impact on the overall health budget. So he says that needs to change as well. The family doctors in AHS need to get more integrated. I feel like this stuff you were mentioning earlier could, sounds like an app. Sounds like, you know, you're born and then you've got an app and it will just, you know, tell you when you need to go to appointments. Well, well, well why not, right? You. Your, yeah. your, your uh, veterinarian will, you know, send you a note when your dog or your puppy needs <laughs> his shots. Your, your car dealership will tell you when you need an oil change, right? Why can't our health system do the same thing? And that's a point the auditor made. But I think the other really important point in the report is to look at the fact that, I mean, this is a systemic problem of micromanagement from the political level. And, and what Marwan Sahar is also saying is that if you set up a thing and you call it Alberta Health Services and it's supposed to run the healthcare system, maybe you ought to let it run the healthcare system instead of having health ministers, um, you know, butt in and say, oh, no, you know, that that's making people in my riding very angry. So don't do that. And I thought it was really funny in Keith's story where he also cautions, you know, tells, tells the opposition, stop blaming the health minister, you know, if the nursing home in your village isn't looking after people properly, that's, you know, you should be yelling at Alberta Health Services. You think they'll take that recommendation? No, I don't think the hardest, that, it is the most common sense recommendation and in, you know, and practically speaking ought to be the simplest uh, if you set up an arm's length you know, effectively, like what we used to call a crown corporation to run your healthcare system, you should let it do its thing and not politicize every public policy decision and, and, and frontline service decision that it makes. But because health is such a hot button issue for voters, it's next to impossible for a politician, either in government or opposition, to resist the temptation 
to politicize, especially if local people are mad about local decisions to, you know, to close a health clinic or a hospital or to, you know, to move up an area of practice from one hospital to another hospital. Uh, these are the kinds of things that voters get really angry about. And you can understand the politicians, uh, their twitch reflex goes off as soon as they see Alberta Health Services doing something that might sway votes. Yeah, everywhere I've lived on that point, Paula, it's true. Health is just one of those things that politically people will just be like, politicians will use it because it's an easy score. Uh, government will use it because they're like, oh, look, we're doing something now. Aren't we good? Like Newfoundland, it was a huge thing. We lived in the Northern Peninsula, kind of very remote up there, right? So the second you're trying to pull services out of there, of course there's going to be an uproar. Saskatchewan, like the NDP in opposition there, would just bring in uh, seniors and families of seniors who are seeing terrible care all the time. Um, of course, Alberta, now as we're seeing here, when I lived in Vancouver, when I lived in England even, it was the same thing. In Australia, it's exactly the same. Nowhere, I don't think anywhere where there's the kind of healthcare system we have, universal healthcare, you yeah. just can't ignore it. There's a reason that the most capable person in the NDP caucus is health minister, because you need to be. That is like all of the kind of political time bombs are in that portfolio. So, and it's always going to be that way. And I think the thing that struck my interest the most in that report is, I'm sure, Keith, you've been hearing this since you've been covering health. We've all been hearing it since the beginning of time that we need to have doctors focus on results, not on like the number of procedures they do to people. And I, I think that is the thing with health that is just so fundamentally wrong. Like when you think about, you know, if you had a car, car is a good analogy, if a mechanic was being paid for the amount of things he recommended that you do to your car, <laughs> right. yeah. it's absurd. And it's the same. Like we See have for service. Yeah. And so there's some interesting studies about, you know, there's one, I think, pretty famous study about diabetics in the States. And um, this is a, a clinic that deals with very people with very serious type two diabetes. And they were given $2,000 worth of uh, basically veggies, just like healthy groceries each year. So that's about $40 a week worth of healthy food. It ended up saving them about $24,000 per person in procedures and costs because your actual physical health is the most important thing. It's not a lot of these things to lower your cholesterol, those drugs. They're not actually addressing the problem. They're just kind of doing a little Band-Aid solution. So I mean, this is the kind of thing where if you have people who are with you and, you know, sort of like a crew of people who are responsible for you with nutrition and all that kind of stuff, it would make a massive difference. And it's a preventative thing that's really hard to get a hold of. And even now, like, doctors aren't taught about nutrition in med school to any great degree. And that has been a problem, you know, across North America even. And uh, it's just because there is, it's not sexy to recommend broccoli. You know, it's not. <laughs> and, and you know, broccoli is delicious. It really it's just, is. What's interesting, you know, when, when you watch Call the Midwife, as, oh, as, no, no, no. I watched does. the first three episodes of that, and it was terrifying. Yeah, and well, I'd already <laughs> sworn off children, but I doubly swore off children but, watching but, that show. You know, but watching that show, and you're, yeah. you're reminded that, like, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s in Alberta, we actually had a system where we had district health nurses and public health nurses who followed up with families. And Stuart and I were talking about this just the other day when we had our babies, um, which was, you know, 20 years apart. Um, you know, you get one visit from a public health nurse who basically checks to make sure that, you know, that you're that you have heat in your house. Yeah, there's no syringes around. Yeah. And, and and that's it, right? Doesn't really, 
it, it never follows back afterwards to see if you're having postpartum depression issues or if the baby is having failure to thrive issues, right? You know, you get one visit and then after that, you're kind of on your own. Um, and I, it makes sense. But I think in Alberta in particular, you will get resistance from people who see this as the ultimate in nanny state meddling. I mean, what could be more big government than the public health system sending you notes reminding you to eat asparagus? (laughs) And the thing is, too, I mean, a lot of this comes down to what are we offering people in in school cafeterias and stuff like that? And how are we like a doctor? should be there to tell you not just how to fix the problem you have, but to say, hey, if you ate a few more vegetables a week, you wouldn't have the cholesterol you have right now. Yeah. You'll cry uh, pizza out, day from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> out there are many doctors rolling their eyes and saying, do you think I don't already tell them? <laughs> yeah. Kate, well, they've curious. actually studied that, and the doctors don't tell people that. And I think partly it's because people don't want to oh, hear it. And mine does. <laughs> it's, it's a hard well, they thing. They just say, lose some weight, and that's yeah. it. Keith, I'm, wor- I'm curious if you think that there's a political appetite to actually do anything here. If this, like every other set of recommendations sometimes around the healthcare system, is just going to be put on a shelf and gathered up. Yeah, Keith, well, Keith can make a whole uh, fort out of the health report. Yeah. That's, that's your desk. Don't you have like a healthcare fort down there? Well, interestingly, the NDP government is actually doing some of this already. So there's a physician resource plan that they're working on, which should, in theory, uh, tie family doctors a little better into Alberta Health Services. They are working on a new governance model for PCNs and a new funding model for PCNs, which should potentially... That's uh, primary care networks. Primary care networks. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, where primary care is, is delivered. Uh, that would, in theory, uh, provide more in- integrated care for patients. They're looking at different uh, compensation models for family doctors, capitation to pay for the care you provide, not necessarily the volume of services. Um, they are introducing a clinical information network, and that was another big uh, thing from the auditors uh, general, is that we, we don't share in patient data around the system very well. Um, and Still. So, Still, exactly. And so patients need to have access to their own data and all your health professionals need to have access to that data to provide you with the best care. So they're working on these things. It's slow. And when I asked Sarah Hoffman about it, she says, well, we're making some progress. But look, this, you know, the Queen Mary doesn't turn on a dime. You know, we have to go at a pace that that's appropriate, that we don't throw chaos into the system. To use that analogy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I do think they are working on some of this. But she she's also a little hesitant that, you know, that they can push uh, any more aggressively on this. Uh, and, you know, they are going to have to get buy-in at the political level, which just, as we've discussed, just doesn't seem... Um, like the opposition's willing to do that. They love using question period to to hammer uh, the government on on particular issues. Uh, And the minister likes intervening. Uh, She's intervened a a number of times with Alberta Health Services and changed course on things. Uh, And they all do it. And until that stops, it's really hard to get to true integration. Yeah. Now, I always remember being at some function where Gene Zwazdeski, when he was health minister, was speaking. And somebody asked him a question from the floor. It was like... he was giving a speech and I was there. I can't remember what it was. I think I was getting an award on behalf of the journal. And uh, so Zwazdeski was speaking and somebody stood up and asked him a question. He was like, oh, uh, yeah, make a note. Yep. And like he, that's how he that's how he changed uh, Alberta Health Services policy. On a napkin. On a napkin. <laughs> and it's like it, and it was I mean, that was totally Gene Zwazdeski, retail politician. Uh, he made the audience happy. But but you can't you can't run a giant healthcare system. Uh, based on the whims of voters or the whims of the politicians of of the day, 
it is worth reading too. But what Keith was talking about, capitation, is that yes, that that's right. Um, there are some really interesting studies on that. It seems to be one of those things that works so well, but just because of the inertia in the system and because of some of the vested interests, yeah, it's hard to do. Um, but the Alberta Medical Association is not a big fan of capitation. For those of you who do not speak health jargon, is so the idea is that a doctor would have like a, a patient list, and so you'd get X many patients on your list, and you'd be responsible for their care, and you'd get paid per patient and they would try to balance your patient load so that you had some low maintenance people and some higher maintenance people so that you didn't have all mm. people who were extremely time intensive. Yeah. And as and discussed earlier, I would be a terrible patient on the list because <laughs> I would be the best one. I would never turn up. So <laughs> no, no, oh, so no they'd love you. Yeah. Because yeah, they'd, oh, be they'd, like the the they'd still get paid. That's like the person who gets the gym membership and never goes. Doctors, you are welcome to court my service. <laughs> but I mean, it's really interesting because it used to work that way, at least in America anyways, where you know, in the early 20th century, you'd pay 25 bucks a year to your doctor and his he didn't get more money if you were more sick. So he kind of had this obligation to keep you as healthy as possible because <laughs> the less he saw you because the healthier you are, the better. And it just makes perfect sense. Mm. So speaking Unless of... Unless um, you're the Alberta Medical Association. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of um, interests being brought up in the middle of political policy, that takes us nicely to labor law. Mm. Or at least if you're the Wild Rose Party, they are very convinced that this was just labor pals. Is that the word they used yesterday in question period? Labor powers? Pals. This oh, is your pals. pals thugs. They've used the word thugs, I think, and union, union bosses. Union bosses. Um, your yeah. union pals is the NDP. So basically, the NDP has introduced its long-awaited, long-awaited, yeah, sure, let's call it that. Um, <laughs> By us, anyways. Labor laws, <laughs> which uh, there's been some controversy about the amount of consultation that was done, how it was done, what exactly they consulted on. Uh, so, Stuart, you've been covering, this is your baby, basically. Yeah. Your other baby, aside from your real one, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is the, labor law. The, well, this yesterday marked the first day that uh, this has ever happened where I walked up to, uh, they call it cabinet inns, where we just grab ministers who are going into question period and ask them questions. And they, and they hardly ever body slam you. Or, yeah, yeah, very rarely. <laughs> Sarah Hoffman's had that once look in her eye once. once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but a lo- so a lot of the staffers kind of hang around and make sure we're not being too mean. And so two... <laughs> Two NDP staffers stopped me immediately as I came up, and they said, did you read Lauren Gunter today? And I, I said, what? Uh, there's no way they're excitedly telling me about Lauren Gunter column. Oh, but, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, so this bill, this labor law bill, which the NDP, or so which the Wild Rose and the PCs have just been losing their minds over before it's even been introduced, um, Lauren Gunter, who's pretty right wing, uh, gave it a big shrug. He's a son columnist. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah. So yeah, our colleague Lauren Gunter said, <laughs> I read this seems legislation. It seems all common sense, <laughs> brings us into line with federal law. And, you know, they have to be careful they don't go too far because Alberta's economy is still in a fragile recovery. But, eh. Yeah. And, uh, like, he is right, actually, that a lot of this is bringing us in line with Supreme Court rulings that Alberta has been years, sometimes more than a decade behind. And it really is an indictment of the Tory governments who. I mean, you don't have an option when it's a Supreme Court ruling. You just have to write some legislation to come into compliance with it. And they just never bother to do that. And actually, a bunch of stuff the NDP has done has been just to get us in compliance with court rulings. And uh, so this bill, the big complaint, I think, from the Wild Rose and the PCs is that the NDP has been very, very mean about how they've brought this through because it's one bill that includes labor relations changes and employment standards changes. The employment standards changes are very broadly supported. It's, for example, if you want um, a sick day without getting fired, you will now be able to do that in Alberta, which you actually cannot do right now. Stunning. You can be fired for 
taking a sick day. Oh, oh, and as an immigrant, I would like to point out, you also get, um, you can take mm. your half a day that you need to take your <laughs> citizenship um, ceremony. And beforehand, you could get fired if you took your half a day that you need to legally become a Canadian <laughs> citizen. Welcome to Canada. Yeah, <laughs> welcome to Canada. You don't have a job anymore. But now that's part of the labor law. The other thing, like there's, these are just like the kind I'm of things. I'm applying for my citizenship, <laughs> so you know. Like really hard to argue against, which is leave if you're uh, in a, a domestic violence incident. If, if you suffer from some kind of domestic violence incident, you get some time to, you know, sort that out, get away from the person, figure your, your living arrangements out. Um, there are compassionate care leave there's leave if your uh, child is critically ill which they actually NDP actually um, Rick McIver was accusing them of being um, shameless in using this woman but she had a, a boy who had leukemia who needed treatment and she got fired for going and attending to his treatment right. and, and, and let's be clear this isn't paid leave no, it's no unpaid this is leave. unpaid leave unpaid sick days unpaid compassionate care it's just if you want that time they now can't fire you your job is protected and so this woman and you know I, I, I didn't actually really buy what Rick McIver was saying because this woman talked to CBC first and the labor department said hey you know we, you are exactly who we're making this bill for do you want to come and chat to us and they, they brought her into the press conference so obviously it's politically good for the NDP but it's not like this woman was some like unknowing pawn. Like she knew exactly what she was doing and she was legitimately over the moon that people in her situation weren't going to get fired in the future. So this kind of stuff, you can't really argue with it. Nobody has tried the wild rose and the PCs both support it. The stuff that they don't like is the labor relations code, uh, which is, uh, changes a lot of things to do with unions and the NDP, obviously their base is heavily union, uh, people. And the major change that everybody was kind of, wondering where they would go on this is to certify a union in Alberta, you have to do a secret ballot vote. And the unions say these secret ballots, they allow the time it takes allows the employer to intimidate workers to hold meetings and say, you know, if you vote for unions, don't expect to have a job when you come back here. Like if that union doesn't get voted in, good luck to you. And so they would kind of put a chill on that. The unions want a card check system where you sign up for a union, you sign a card, you're a member, and then if they get the unions wanted 50 plus one on the card check, the union is certified. The employers say that allows a union guy to go up and say, sign this card or else. I mean, you're going to be the guy who doesn't. Do you want to be the guy who doesn't vote for the union? And we all know you're the guy who didn't vote for the union. So there's intimidation alleged on both sides. The NDP has tried to thread the needle by having this kind of hybrid system, which is if you get a card check that's more than 65%, union is certified. If the card check shows 40 to 65, you then go to a secret ballot, you vote in the secret ballot. If you win 50 plus one in the secret ballot, you got yourself a union. So that is how they've tried. And, and that actually, Lauren Gunter didn't have a problem with. And yeah, that, the doesn't, piece, that doesn't seem to be an unreasonable compromise. Because, it seems, because, I, because I take the opposition's point about a card check system. Yeah, it's um, both fair points, I think. You know, I mean, when there was a failed union drive here at the Journal years ago, it got very fraught. And these were, you know, people who were really good friends on two different sides. And so, you know, the anonymity of of letting it be a secret ballot, I think, is something that preserved, you know, a, a good working relationship among colleagues here. Yeah. But, yeah, that seems to me like a yeah, like a fair balance. In the in the technical briefing, they had the lawyer who kind of did a lot of these recommendations, uh, Mr. Sims, who 
he was very entertaining. And then they had him in the press conference, and he's one of those lawyers who he's old enough, he just doesn't care anymore. Like, he doesn't <laughs> care what he says. He's <laughs> smart, it. seems to really know his 40 years in labor laws. And I was watching the uh, communications person, Matt Dykstra, who used to actually work here with us. Every time Mr. Sims would talk, you could see, like, a look in his eye, like, oh, no, like, what's he going to say? (laughs) He was very colorful. And his point was, like, we know that intimidation happens, and we know it can swing the vote by about 10 to 15 points. So we made it 65% and then 40% on either side just because that's how it tends to work. Like, you kind of get rid of that that swing. So it seems to be a pretty good compromise. And I said to the minister at the press conference you know you've tried to please both sides here by kind of watering it down and you know finding a compromise that doesn't satisfy both of them are you worried that both of them will be mad now and she said well you know that's a good compromise it's the kind of thing where (laughs) everyone hates it it's perfect everybody is equally unhappy is a good compromise right and she was kind of joking and i put that quote in my story with context that she's joking and then the headline they put on my story was labor bill will make everyone equally unhappy in quotes (laughs) and I I saw her in the cafeteria the next morning and I was like I kind of felt bad for you on that one and she was like well you know I said it (laughs) so it it is interesting like this is I think they're like it's going to be really interesting to see how this goes the wild rose and pcs voted against it on first reading and that is what either the first time it's ever happened or it hasn't happened in a very very long time because they wanted to bring attention to the fact that the ndp are all involved with unions and there are all these conflicts of interest 31 right they did it on the budget actually they vote against first reading but on a bill it's very rare and so what they wanted to do was they wanted to get a, a so when first reading is a voice vote and if somebody says no, you then call a division, which brings everybody in to vote. And they all vote by name so you know who voted for what. So the Wild Rose were saying, we wanted to get them all on the record as voting. Um, and then we could see, because we think some of them have conflicts of interest with their ties to unions and can't vote on this bill, which this has been sort of an ongoing thing since McIver was fined for something about the electricity debate. Well, uh, no, but that's because his wife was... His he wife owned was running, a power company. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's different. I mean, if any... I mean, clearly, if they're MLAs in the legislature, they do not belong to a union because they're not working in yes. a union. I mean... I think that's fair. And the, But then what happened was... Paul they was called, rolling her eyes at <laughs> they, they called the division, and then they had them on the record... But then they all voted no against first reading. And I was, we asked Brian T. And he said, well, we know we just don't like this bill. And I asked the Wild Rose Communications people, and they said, yeah, that was kind of a miscommunication. Like, they were supposed to <laughs> they were supposed to vote no on the voice vote and then vote yes in the division with the, like, recorded vote. And they got and they, so they caught they got up confused. in the moment. <laughs> yeah. And they all went, no, we don't like it. Oh, that's really so, awful. Well, of course, the Wild Rose have wanted, um, they wanted this bill to be split in two. So they want the compassionate stuff that everyone can yeah. agree is a really great idea to go through now. And then they wanted the stuff about unions to have summer consultations and then vote on that specific part in the fall. Yeah. Thank you for staying with me through all of that. If you did and you're listening to this <laughs> we still. We did. It was, well, it was well explained. But doesn't doesn't that seem a little bit cynical of the NDP to put this all together and say, hey, Wild Rose, here's a political bomb. You deal with it yeah. now. Uh, well, I, yeah. I would say that is yeah. true. <laughs> um, well, Notley brought that up in question period, too. She said, you know what? Brian, Jean, you were part of the Harper government, which did this all the time. So don't you dare complain to me he, about that. He called it an omnibus bill. And when you hear yeah. the word omnibus bill, who do you think about? You think about Stephen Harper. Yeah, you do. Well, this, this isn't an omnibus bill. It's no. like a, it's like a, it's like a, <laughs> 
bus with a little trailer behind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that it's is mini bus. <laughs> this is less cynical than those federal omnibus bills, which were just uh, a thousand pages of unrelated garbage put in together. And this, you could make an argument. This is Alberta's labor laws. Putting it together makes a certain amount of sense, but it is. It is making it inc- incredibly hard for the opposition. Well, I, th- I think one could call that strategic. Strategic, ne- yeah. <laughs> so I need. It's a nice we, way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have to move on to electoral boundaries. We only have a very short amount of time. This is to Emma's talk about favorite this. topic. It's. I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it was report came out yesterday. Whatever, like <laughs> 200 page report. I wasn't excited or anything. I didn't run to the speaker's office and physically trip up the stairs trying to get there as soon as it was tabled or anything. Um, that's exactly <laughs> what happened. I actually really hurt my wrist. You fall up a lot of stairs. <laughs> I know. That's the second time it's happened. They're there. slippery and they're marble. And well, it was when I went onto the marble ones because I'd been on the non-marble ones, and then I was, I was, yeah, I was trying You're to run up. To get to the speaker's office, I was bounding up the stairs two at a time, and I just, yep, slipped, <laughs> and then caught myself, and I was like, ah! <laughs> and then I ran into the speaker's office and went, hi, can I get a copy of the Boundaries Commission report? And they gave it to me, and I was like, ow, I really need to ice my wrist. <laughs> but yeah, um, so it's an interim report. The Boundaries Commission has been was tasked back in December to look at this. They started looking at Alberta's electoral boundaries on December 19. They had a lot of feedback from people. They had more feedback from rural folks than they did from city folks. Basically, the upshot is that they're going to consolidate some rural ridings. Uh, There's going to be a new riding in Edmonton, a new riding in Calgary, and a new riding that's going to combine Airdrie and Cochrane. That is, of course, if all of these recommendations are indeed accepted and and they go through, which... Yeah, they probably will. It seemed to me also a reasonable compromise. I mean, the challenge is always we don't have representation by population in this province because urban ridings are hugely uh, have hugely greater population density than the rural ones. So you get people like our pal David Staples, who you know basically wants each vote to have the same weight. But if you do that, then you really do disenfranchise rural voters who have specific issues. The challenge has always been. if the rural ridings are too large, how does an MLA serve them? Balanced with the fact that, you know, you get a whole lot of rural voters who traditionally voted Tory or or Wild Rose um, versus urban voters who tend more to vote um, for the New Democrats to the extent that one does. Uh, so this didn't seem to me, they're only consolidating a couple of rural riding. It's the bad ones. Airdrie was, it was massive. Mm. Something had to budge there. Yeah, yeah. and so, so they, they're going to make a, a suburban, urban riding there. They'll consolidate one in the north and one in the south. Yeah, Drumheller, Stetler, um, that's going to go Strathmore, Brooks, and kind of bringing those together. Derek Felderbrand is not impressed. He know, yeah. I'll need a, a plane to get from one end to the other <laughs> now, he said. It, which is, uh, that's a good point too. And uh, as what Paula was saying, but also that uh, you know, a lot of uh, Alberta's Aboriginal population are in these areas, so they're going to be even less represented than they already are. But, you know, the the challenge is, as respectful as one wants to be of rural Albertans and as respectful as one wants to be of the, the difficulty for an MLA in representing a riding larger than France, um, uh, you can't perennially disenfranchise urban voters by discounting their ballots. 
I remember when Dave Hancock was running in Edmonton White Mud, and a vote in Edmonton White Mud was so severely discounted compared to a vote in a rural riding. It, it I mean, it, it was lunacy, right? I mean, so... It could be like a quarter of the vote yeah. at this point. So, you know, it, it is tough because what are you saying to people in the cities? Well, you know, your votes just don't count for as much as rural votes. You can't perennially have that balance so far out of alignment. So, I mean, I thought the Boundary Commission interim report was pretty, you know. It's a tough job, too, yeah, because was, yeah. you know, was, they can't uh, add more writings. No, that, so they weren't allowed to. Somebody's getting screwed either way. Yeah. And they did um, – so, of course, it's an interim report, and now people can have their say over the summer. And if you fancy having a look at the uh, <laughs> the boundaries report, it's got a whole bunch of maps at the end. You but can have a bit of a look. They don't have maps of, of the proposed urban redistribution yet, do they? Or do they? Uh, they're all maps, yeah. There are maps of, like, all the new writings in the back there. I, I only flick through them, Paul, I'll be yeah. honest. I had to go to that press conference and to go to another thing. So I was kind of like, oh, maps. I'll look at them later. Maybe with a glass of wine at home. <laughs> because that, cause that's, cause that's <laughs> Which didn't happen. No, actually it <laughs> didn't. Because that's also the other trick then is how do you balance the writings within an urban center? One of the things they were talking about uh, in response to that in, a, in Edmonton, apparently, it was very, very easy. It's very easy to not split up neighborhoods and redistribute um, writings and not kind of, you know, cut through the middle of specific neighborhoods or take them weird ass places but in calgary that was very very hard and they couldn't do it apparently they spent four days on trying to rejig calgary Hmm. and they just couldn't so they had to split up neighborhoods and stuff is that the grid system in edmonton kind of doing that edmonton is weirdly geographically balanced uh, balanced compared with calgary which is out of whack apparently so i learned yesterday from justice mara bilby (laughs) who is the um the commission chair, she was talking about that. And I thought it was really interesting. Didn't mention it in my story because I don't think that's interesting to everybody. <laughs> Just our loyal <laughs> podcast yes, listeners. Who are probably, they've switched off by now. <laughs> They're like, Jesus Christ, Emma. It's not that exciting. But yeah, it's, I'm interested to see the feedback on this over the summer. Whether in fact they do get any feedback at all because... Oh, they'll get feedback. Well, they had 749 uh, submissions made in their first round. Uh, and that's interesting because in the entire process in 2010, when they last did a review, they only had 500 people. And that was in the first amount of consultations, the second amount of consultations after the interim report. They only had 500 and they're already at 750. I think so. the public, though, is much more aware of the ger- gerrymandering issue that you see in the United States and how that ha- does have an actual impact on, on yeah. elections. So I, I think public awareness of this issue is a little heightened. Not that this is gerrymandering in any sense, but the, how boundaries are drawn for elections is, is a, I think, an issue in the public mind now. Well, there might be a concern, too. I mean, if you're a rural voter, you were pretty dang sure that Ralph Klein wasn't going to redistribute the vote so that there were fewer rural ridings. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the New <laughs> Democrats ha- are not going to... Uh, are not going to be as concerned about preserving their rural base. Yeah, I wonder, like, I do wonder what they're going to do because they uh, they don't want to look like they're taking advantage here. And that's a really tough question of do we do this just the way they said or do we kind of fudge it a little bit to look like we're not just doing it for ourselves? Yeah, they're really walking a tightrope here. Mm-hmm. And you did, I don't know if you read their statement on it, but it was like... From the party too. Yeah, yeah. it was like, this is a good review and we uh, love reviews. They're doing a great job. Like, it didn't say anything. No. And the Wild Rose was like, that's garbage. Go, <laughs> go with the Minority Report. <laughs> it was um, very my favorite different. Tom Cruise movie as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
On that note, um, we have all summer to talk more about boundary reviews, if so we please. Uh, let's move to good stuff from the gallery. Uh, Stuart, what do you have for us this week, mate? Uh, this week, I have a piece from Elle magazine. Um, it is a profile of the uh, New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman, who is, you know, if you've read a good story about Donald Trump in the New York Times this uh, year, it's probably Maggie Haberman. She is an absolute force of nature. And I know as a journalist by reading her stuff that she's good. This kind of gives you a sense of what her life is like, and she kind of uh, kind of reminded me of Emma a little bit. Just her kind of really. <laughs> she a joke. <laughs> well, now we, now we <laughs> have to read. She, she has this kind of <laughs> frantic energy that seems <laughs> like it seems like it's not real at first, and they're like, "No, this is just who she is. Like this is just the kind of person she is," and it just channels her professional. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to take uh, it, but I'll, uh, I'm going to consider it a compliment. Okay. Thank you, Stuart, so very much for my frantic. <laughs> it's meant as a compliment. Yeah. It's a great piece. <laughs> Paula, what do you have? All right. Uh, I've done nothing this week but train a puppy and read about Donald Trump's trip to, <laughs> trip to Europe. Oh, but, but I'm not going to talk about Donald Trump and his and his you know the way he shoves the poor prime minister of Montenegro out of the way to get to the front front of the bus. I'm going to recommend something completely different. Um, I've been uh, listening to. My daughter showed me how to put podcasts on my phone so that I could hey, be Celia. <laughs> so that I could be super cool. Um, and for Mother's Day, she bought me a headset so that I could walk to work and listen to podcasts. And I have been listening to a podcast recommended by David Staples uh, by a, an American popular historian, Dan Carlin. He has a podcast called Hardcore History. And I've begun with his uh, very long three-part series about uh, tensions between the ancient Greeks and the Persians and the Peloponnesian Wars. And so good. It's. I mean, I, I'm just. I'm just loving this. Uh, Carlin's style is so discursive. You start. You know. You start at the Battle of Thermopylae, and you suddenly you're in ancient Assyria, and people are chopping the heads off their enemies, and you know, putting them on spikes. And wow, it's. It's great. Sounds I just awesome. he's he's uh, absolutely charming. Uh, His delivery of the gory stuff is just tremendous. Oh, he's got cool. a great voice for it. <laughs> um, I am going to recommend. I don't have a specific thing, but I'm going to pick out some links of the favorite stuff I've been reading. Um, it's the 50th anniversary of the 1967 referendum in Australia, which it's a national sorry day, basically. And there was a referendum and it was to give more rights to Indigenous folks in Australia. Um, there are a lot of stories that have come out. Um, Australia, if you don't know, has a horrific history with uh, with Aborigines, including you know, missions and something similar to residential schools and just an appalling treatment. So it is a 50th anniversary down there and uh, there's a lot of really, really great work coming out of Australia. So I'll just cherry pick some of those and throw them up onto the website. Keith? Well, as I mentioned, uh, I'm going to recommend the uh, auditor's report that I covered yesterday called Better, Better Healthcare for Albertans. Uh, it's divided at up a glance. at a glance. Well, that's the <laughs> at a glance. There's also a longer version. If you just want to read the at a glance part, that that's sufficient. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, auditors' reports are not riveting stuff. But for people who are interested in the health system, wondering what all this chatters about, why we haven't sort of gotten to a better place, uh, why people are complaining, this encapsulates it all very nicely. It's not written like uh, an auditor's report normally. It's written in plain old, good old English, um, and it's worth it's worth an hour of your time. Fantastic. 
thank you so much for joining me, guys. Stuart, Paula, Keith, and Greg, who's here to film some of this and put it online at edmontonjournal.com, where you can find all of the previous episodes of the Press Gallery podcast. You can also sign up to our SoundCloud channel, iTunes, and TuneIn Radio, and then you get all the latest updates, and isn't that fun? Uh, I hope you join us this time next week on the Press Gallery. Thank you.